When do you usually begin putting up your Christmas decorations? For a lot of people, it's right about now, isn't it? In the U.S., when you get past Thanksgiving, uh, then it's time to get ready for Christmas. And so what all do you usually do to get ready for Christmas? In the weeks leading up, what do you busy yourself with? Parties? Programs at church and at school? Shopping? Putting up the Christmas tree? But do you do anything that gets you thinking about what it is we Christians are actually celebrating at this time of year? Well, many throughout history, and still today, observe Advent. Has that been, or is that still, part of your tradition? Well, on this Discover the Word podcast, the group's going to talk about Advent, what that practice is celebrating, and an aspect of Advent, the lighting of the Advent candles, that can infuse a dose of meaning into your Christmas this year. So join the Discover the Word group for a series of conversations about the adventure of Advent, beginning next. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Mark Dehan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And Elisa is going to be leading these discussions about the adventure of Advent. Now, some of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with Advent. You celebrate each year with your church and your family the different aspects of this tradition that's been around for centuries. Many others are not as familiar with what Advent is about. It's not something that they do each year. And so that dynamic is also represented around the table, as you'll hear. But I think it'll be good to explore together how this really can be a helpful way to focus our attention over the next few weeks on truly what Christmas is about. And so let's get started and see where this study about the adventure of Advent goes. Elisa? How do you prepare for guests who are coming to visit? You may not do anything, but, but how do you typically prepare if you're expecting company? It usually involves a trip to the grocery store, <laughs> uh, not just to get the stuff that they like, but just to get stuff. Uh, stuff, yeah. yeah. And we usually think about if it's grandkids, what are their favorites, you know, if it's other family. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Bill. It kind of depends on who's coming. You know, if it's a friend that we have known for a long time, we probably won't, other than maybe sh making sure we have the necessities, we won't prepare as much as maybe someone who we don't know real well yet. And mm. we want to be more inviting, I guess, because we feel like they'll need that to mm -hmm. feel welcome. For me, it, it involves, uh, even if it's not a holiday, just going through the house and getting rid of my piles of stuff. I pile <laughs> stuff up all over the place. Especially <laughs> and, off and the guest room bed, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, you know, as we get ready for Christmas, do you guys do anything special personally or in your family or in your church to prepare yourselves for Christmas coming? Yeah, we do a lot. So I'm part of the Anglican Church, and uh, we do something called Advent, which is a season of preparation for Christmas. And so it doesn't sneak up on us like it does sometimes. Mm -mm. Between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it can sometimes feel like a rush of lots of activities and things going on and all that. And so it's a way to kind of slow down and remember the season we're in. Let's just go right on in there, Daniel. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking about Advent. And Daniel, you just said it means what again? It means arrival. Back in the old days, they would use the word to describe like, hey, you know that trip we're really excited about? 
This is the advent of our trip, meaning it finally got here for us to go. And so arrival or coming or something like that. Helpful. Elisa, how long has the church been doing that? Yeah. Yeah, I did a little study on it because we've practiced Advent in church in terms of a wreath and candles and lighting one each week. But I guess, Mart, it's been around since about the fourth century. And originally, it was for new believers to prepare themselves for baptism, which is interesting. And then during the Middle Ages, it would focus in believers on the second coming of Christ. So a really good question. Um, And yes, the word means coming or arrival, but it also carries this sense of expectation or longing. Mm -hmm. So we're looking back at what has been promised about God's provision for us, and we're looking forward, and that would be in Jesus, his first coming, and then we're looking forward to that re-coming, the second coming of Jesus. And, And Advent is about preparing us for Christmas, for the coming of Christ, by remembering what God's done and looking forward to it again, if you will. Does it also have the idea then of of longing with a sense of need? Sure, sure. For what's coming? Yeah, sure, Mart. I think that's, you know, we can get real in our heads about this. I mean, when I was starting to study about this, I was like, which color of a candle and which week for this? And it, it can get a little scary if, am I doing this right? The heart of Advent is this sense of connection to Christ. And what I want us to look at is that we're talking about arrival and coming. There's another Latin word, and that's what Advent is, which means coming or arrival, that has the same derivation, the same origin, and it's the word we use for adventure. (laughs) (laughs) And and that really means getting excited about slash, you know, receiving, expecting something that's going to at last appear in us. So as we have these conversations this week, I want us to think about Advent as an adventure, a discovery of what does it mean to us, to you, to Mart, Bill, Brian, Daniel, and myself, and everybody who's here with us having these conversations. What does it mean to expect and long for the coming of Christ at Christmas? Okay, so let me ask you a question before you go any further. I come from a tradition where we did not practice Advent. I've seen it done, and I understand the concept and so forth. At Christmas, isn't there a difference between saying I'm preparing for the coming of Christ as opposed to I'm preparing for the celebration or remembrance of the coming of Christ? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. That's a super clarification. He doesn't like be born in a stable every year. Exactly. So we are remembering, but that in itself is symbolic. We're remembering that, that God created us, that we're a broken people, that he promised to rescue us, that he prophesied his rescue for thousands of years, that Jesus did come and he's changed our world forever. And then he died on a cross and rose again. And one day he will come back. So we as believers in the 21st century are, yes, Bill, you know, celebrating, but also reentering the reality of that at every single Christmas. One of the things that's been really helpful for me, Bill, and really like filled me with hope and joy and peace and a lot of the terms that show up this time of year. One of the beautiful things about looking back and remembering that God promised a Messiah would come and then kept his promise when Jesus was born at Christmas, remembering God's faithfulness to keep that promise as we look forward to Jesus coming again. It's Mm -hmm. like, hey, that same God that was faithful then, that's the God that we're trusting in. 
that Jesus is going to come back. So it is that looking back to look forward, to celebrate, mm-hmm. to, as Mart, you just said, like prepare ourselves in the focusing in on our needs mm-hmm. and our brokenness and, and why we need Christ to begin with. But I just love that theme of God's faithfulness that mm-hmm. kind of runs through. So to unpack the symbolism of Advent, and it's exactly for those reasons that we've been chatting about here, to remember and to look forward. Usually there's a a wreath, usually evergreen, although sometimes it's fake, okay, but a green (laughs) wreath that symbolizes the eternity of God, um, the eternity of us, uh, the everlasting life that we find in Jesus, the hope of eternal life. And then there's four outer candles usually purple and one pink, which always confuses me because those are not Christmassy colors, (laughs) and then one white candle. Okay, and so then what we do is each week we focus on one element, and usually these elements represent something that Christ is bringing into our world or brought into our world through his birth. You focus on one element, and the order of these elements may be different based on your persuasion, but all of these symbols are to help us enter again, remember God's faithfulness, as you said, Daniel, and bring it forward. So we've got these four candles, and three are purple and one's pink. Now, what I have learned about that is that the three purple represent kingly Jesus, you know, the the royalty of Jesus, but also the light coming into the darkness, taking it from an indigo blackness into a increasing light and the pink candle as well. So that kind of puts a little context there. And we'll look at those as we go through. Another variation is that different persuasions and I'm meaning denominations or believing practices may also call the candles rather than the elements about what Jesus bring to us. They may label them according to like a thing like prophecy or the journey to Bethlehem or the shepherd or the angels may label them that way. I don't know that it matters enormously because, you know, we all know that the practice of Advent is not something that is, you know, threaded through scripture that we're supposed to observe, you know, like Passover was. It's a practice that we have invented, if you will, to celebrate what is rooted in scripture, which is God's faithfulness to us. Okay, questions or processes here before we dive into the first candle we want to look at. I just don't understand why one of them's pink. I mean, I I get the purple for royalty, but the pink one, I'm lost there. Purple also represents penitence or penitential, like uh, remembering our brokenness and how that's affected us in the world and our relationship to God and our relationship to others. And then pink tends to represent joy. And so both in Advent and then Lent, which are both seasons of preparation for something that Jesus did, you have a moment of joy that pops up in the middle. Okay, and you know, I'm coming at this from the outside like Bill, too, and so a lesser question I have is, is this done individually in homes or just within the collective church? Sure, families can do this, individuals can do this, so maybe you want to enter Christmas this year with a new practice that helps you remember God's faithfulness. And before we run out of time in our first conversation, I want to take us into the first candle. And different scriptures are used for different candles, too. I'm going to focus all of our conversations this this week in on the Christmas story, basically from Luke 2, because I think we see each of these elements that Jesus brings into the world 
in that passage of scripture. The first candle of Advent is usually the hope candle, and it's also called the expectation candle or the anticipation candle. This is where the adventure of Advent comes in here. But it can be called the prophecy candle because it remembers the prophets, especially Isaiah, who foretold the birth of the Messiah of Jesus. Daniel, could you grab Isaiah 7, 14, and just give us an example of how prophecy plays a role in the candle of hope. Sure. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay. So often when we light this first purple candle of hope in expectancy, we're remembering a prophecy, and we might read Isaiah 7, 14. We might also, and this is where I wanted to take us in Luke, and this is towards the end of the Christmas story, but we see a lot of hope here, and it's the story of Simeon and the story of Anna in Luke 2, verses 25 to 28, And I don't think we'll read the whole thing here for the sake of time, but if you want to try this out to lead yourself into the adventure of Advent, to expect Jesus and remember who he is at Christmas, do this in your church or in your home. Uh, Mark, would you grab just Luke 2, 25 and 26? This is Simeon. We'll hear a little bit about what he experienced. Okay. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous and devout man and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Okay, and so what happens is that as Mary and Joseph are bringing the baby Jesus to be consecrated into the temple, Simeon has been there. And as the rest of the passage goes on, it reveals how he is able to see this Messiah in the flesh and this hope of expectation is met. An amazing moment. The second illustration is of Anna, and she was the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was old. She was a widow. Bill, would you get Luke 2 and read verses 37 and 38 and listen for the hope that's being fulfilled in Anna's interaction with Jesus as a baby? Okay, so after we're told who she is and that she's a widow, it says she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying coming up to them, which would be Mary and Joseph and and the baby, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Where do you hear hope there, Bill? Looking forward to Mm -hmm. uh, the redemption of Israel. Mm -hmm. Biblical hope is this confident expectation of what God has promised by looking back at his faithfulness in the past and trusting that he'll provide in the future. The concept of hope is something that begins the adventure of Advent. We have a God who was faithful in the past. We have a God who will be faithful in the future. And as we light the first candle, the first purple candle in this evergreen wreath of Advent, might we consciously remember the expectation and the anticipation of hope that comes when we look forward to remembering the celebration of Jesus' arrival in our planet, but in our hearts as well.
We're moving into the second candle in the Advent wreath, and it represents love. And so my question to think about this is, what does love have to do with the Christmas story? I mean, just bottom line, I can see hope. We've talked about hope and the expectation of the Messiah coming. What does love have to do with the Christmas story? Are you kidding? (laughs) Why is that your response? It just seems like this is the love story. I mean, this is the great cosmic love story. And maybe that's why it challenges me, Mart, because I tend to think so much about love on a horizontal level. You know, when we come to Christmas, we come to family and friends and, you know, celebrations or frustrations, you know, around the table or the Christmas tree. And we have all this expectation. But truly, when we think of Christmas. I mean, how many Hallmark commercials have you seen? You know, and how many wonderful commercials for the local grocery store have you seen where it is about families coming together and love seems to be oozing out of every pore? Hmm. And yet when we come to Christmas, is that what Christmas love really looks like? Hmm. You know, I think of actually Mary and Joseph's relationship in thinking about love, not just God's love. And I know it would be different than the type of love that we often see as romantic love and stuff like that. But there was just the way it took an angel to tell Joseph to stick around. Um, but he did try to honor Mary in very cool ways. In and sacrificial story. ways. And sacrificially, yeah. So I think there's some love there too that is maybe a different kind of Christmas love as you just kind of set us up for Elisa too. I just am so blessed that you said that, you guys, because that's what's really struck me as I've looked at this second candle, the candle of love. It's a pure, selfless, sacrificial love. And Mart, of course, it is the greatest love story. It's a cosmic love story. But as I began to read through scriptures that are often assigned to the second week of Advent, the love candle. There is the story of Mary and Joseph there. Mm -hmm. And I have been reading back through it, and I've been blown away by the selfless cosmic love enacted in a relationship love, a pure, selfless, sacrificial love. And actually, I'd love for us to read a little bit about their relationship. And if we can read between the lines here, as we've said in other conversations, All kinds of different scriptures are used to light the Advent candles and to bring us into a meditation on what God has done. But we're focusing in on the Christmas story scriptures and specifically the story as is told in Luke chapter 2. Let's go to Luke 2, 1 to 7 and listen for this kind of Christmas love, the cosmic love expressed in a concrete human love. Hmm. You want to start off, Mart, and we'll go around? Okay. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
This second candle of love, sometimes referred to as the Bethlehem candle, to remember Joseph and Mary's journey from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem, is a candle where we pause and remember love, the cosmic love, the amazing love of creation, and of course, God's greatest gift to us in the gift of salvation through Jesus. But let's unpack the details here of this journey. What do we know about Caesar Augustus? What do we know about the decree and the census? What do we know about Joseph's and Mary's lineage and why they had to journey? What do we know about the the journey to Bethlehem? And what do we know about the place they stayed? So let's just kind of popcorn in what kinds of understandings we have. Well, we know that there are a lot of things attached to it traditionally that probably in reality historically didn't happen. Most Christmas cards, for instance, where you see Mary and Joseph on the way, it traditionally will show Mary sitting on a donkey. There's no donkey in the story. Now, (laughs) is it possible? Sure, it's possible. Is it a definite? No, not necessarily. And the reason to me that matters is because it would have taken five days to walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And If you have this young girl who's pregnant for the first time and having to walk that huge length, I mean, that's Mm. pretty Mm. remarkable. Mm -hmm. That is. Yeah, there's also legend has it that she's like basically giving birth on the donkey as they get into town and Joseph's rushing around to try to find space real quick. But the story actually doesn't suggests that either. Um, It just says that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Mm -hmm. And I remember a couple years ago when you all handed to me the book, uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey. And I read the story where it kind of unpacked that, that just while they were there. Um, And so Joseph probably was wise enough to know they needed to go early so that she wasn't giving birth on the journey itself. So you're saying it could have been a matter of weeks then, right? Yeah. Well, and there was no evil innkeeper who looked at the girl in the midst of childbirth and said, not you, get out of here. The translation we read said that there was no guest room available, which has a totally different feel than the old, there was no room for them in the inn. Mm. Yeah, because it was like a room in the house. Yeah, yeah. A typical house. And it would have been unthinkable in that culture that a girl could come into town and give birth to a child and the women of that village wouldn't rally to her mm-hmm. to help with that because that's just part of the culture itself. Mm. So we've shaken up this story almost like you take a snow globe and you know shake it up and now this the snow is settling in different places. So and it's helpful sometimes to undo our thinking when we go to read a section of scripture, you know, take off the lenses of familiarity of it. And certainly the Christmas story has those. What do we see about love in this Christmas reading? What is in the story? Where do you see love? And Daniel, I'm going to start with you. You talked about the relationship with Mary and Joseph. Mm-hmm. Let's dig into that even a little bit more. In those days, here comes the, the census. What's happening? Is this an easy time for Mary and Joseph? Yeah, I mean, it's disruptive for sure, because mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. to put their life on pause for a certain amount of time to travel to Bethlehem. And there was no love in Augustus. He, yeah, he wasn't right. setting Good. the stage for the birth of the king. Yeah. But there was love in God because, I mean, the king's heart's in the Lord's hand and he moves it as he wills. And, I mean, there's great love, I think, in God kind of through this 
Augustus, who you said, Mark, didn't have a lot of love in him, but God used that to put the Roman world in motion to get Mary and Joseph to the place they needed to be for the Messiah to be born. In fact, uh, would one of you read Micah 5-2 right here? And you see this cosmic love that you're talking about that God can use, even Augustus, who seemed to have no love, God can use that. Mm. Yeah, I'll read it for you, Elisa. Micah 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this part of the Christmas story really demonstrates God's sovereignty, that nothing can thwart his plan to show us that we are loved by providing a Savior. Okay, but go back to Mary and Joseph. They're betrothed, they're pledged to be married, but they're not married yet. But Joseph, he could have abandoned her, correct? Well, it took a little encouragement from the angel because he did what any man most likely would have done in that culture, which is uh, finds out that she's pregnant and is like, okay, well, this is where I step out of the story. And um, But he does it differently than anybody else would have most likely because he tries to do it quietly. Mm-hmm. He decides he's not going to bring dishonor to her or shame to her but just kind of step out of the picture in a very subtle way. Mm -hmm. But then the angel Mm -hmm. comes and says, no, this isn't what you think. She didn't get pregnant by another guy. And as a result, Joseph decides to honor her and honor God. Mm. Thanks, Daniel. And then in verse 7, you know, Mary also illustrates the love herself. Bill, read it one more time for us, if you don't mind. This is Luke 2, 7. And let's see how Mary, we see love in her. She gave birth to her firstborn son, She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. What are you seeing there, Elisa? She gave birth to a son. Hmm. She wrapped him in cloths. She placed him in a manger. Each one of those, you know, if you have seen a child be born, if you have given birth to a child, if you're a grandparent of a child, the act of birth, the act of mothering, the act of caring for that child in and out of the womb, what a gesture of love. All of this story, if we look beneath the surface and we look at the surface, we see both the cosmic expression of love, we see the physical human expression of love. And then maybe most of all, and this is kind of where we started, are you kidding, Mart? <laughs> what does love have to do with it? <laughs> Would you read 1 John 4.10? I think it answers the question. John writes, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's what love has to do with it. Of course, love is one of the central themes of the Christmas story, and it's what's behind Jesus' promise to return, his second advent as well. Well, you're at the Discover the Word table with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day talking about love as the second candle in the advent wreath. Now, some churches do peace for the second candle, and the order does vary some among different traditions. But no matter the order in which you observe the Advent themes, there is so much to discover in this special way of celebrating this season. So next, we'll move on to the shepherd's candle, the joy candle. 
the candle lit to begin the third week of Advent. And we'll do that after this quick break. Now, during this week's podcast, we'd like to highlight a rhyming book for children from the Our Daily Bread Publishing Group called Our Daily Bread for Little Hearts, This is Christmas. Now, this adorable book might be something you want to include in your Advent observance for the kids and grandkids. Because I hope however you choose to celebrate Christmas, you do set aside some special time to teach your children or your grandchildren about the true meaning of Christmas. And a great way to do that is by reading them this fun, illustrated children's board book titled, Our Daily Bread for Little Hearts, This is Christmas. The story is based on Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem and features beautiful illustrations and memorable rhymes to help your toddlers understand Christmas. Find out how you can order a copy of This is Christmas when you visit discovertheword.org. There's a link there at discovertheword.org. Okay, now back to the group for the next Advent candle, the pink-colored joy candle. Okay, this is kind of like a, a game here. I want you to think of every single Christmas carol you can, what comes to mind that has the word joy in it, especially the title, but maybe like in just the first couple of lines, what comes to mind? Oh, I'm going to grab it because I'm not good at this. Okay, <laughs> joy to the world. <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting, you know, in an earlier conversation, Elisa, you were telling us that Advent not only anticipates the celebration of the coming of Christ at Christmas, but at his second coming. Mm. And Isaac Watts actually wrote Joy to the World about the second coming, not about Christmas. That's beautiful. Okay, Daniel, what comes to your mind? Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. (laughs) There's something about that, like joy. It's good. It's good. Really good. You know, probably this is as good an illustration as we're going to get of why I've called this series the adventure of Advent, because we are having an adventure here. We are discovering all kinds of things, which is super fun. You know, Advent is a time of coming, arrival. That's what it means. And we're looking back at God's promise of a rescuer, and we're also looking forward to the fact that Jesus will come again. And in the middle of that is the reality of Christmas when God first gave his son. Joy is the third candle that we light in Advent. So, so far we've covered hope, which is an expectation, and then love, which is this pure selfless act. And today we come to joy. When have you experienced it? What do you think it is? Well, the real joy... I guess part of the challenge, Elise, is that we tend to make joy and happiness synonyms, but everything I've ever heard say they're not really the same thing, that that happiness is more rooted in circumstances, but joy is more abiding and internal and uh, mm-hmm. more rooted in our relationship with mm-hmm. God as opposed to the circumstances we might be facing. Is that kind of what you're That's a great way to put it. What I learned is that hap comes from the root of circumstance, exactly. Mm -hmm. And joy is more about our confidence in God's character and who he is, and therefore we have joy. Yeah, and we've all been stunned by people that are in terrible circumstances that from the outside we look at and they should be miserable, but they Mm -hmm. are filled with joy and how inspiring that is. And all of that came to mind, to be honest with you, Elisa, the first 
thought that came to mind was not a very spiritual one. I thought of myself out on a lake, mm-hmm. fishing for hours, and all of a sudden, <laughs> the big bass. You know, I, yeah. I got him hooked, and I landed him, and it's just like, oh, I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. But you know, that was one side. The other thing that honestly came to mind immediately are, have been some of those moments, even recently, when I sensed the Lord making a provision for me mm. that I couldn't have made myself. Mm. And it's kind of like there's a joy there that just was not like catching that big fish. You know, mm. this is like being caught by the presence of God Ooh. and talk about joy. It's mm. beautiful. Mm. We might experience it at the birth of a child or at a reunion after a long separation or after a reconciliation after a painful wounding or healing after an exhausting illness. I mean, we might experience it in some of those ways, but what you're calling us back to in all of these illustrations and comments you're making is this character of God that is revealed in us, that bubbles up in us, that we get to see. And, and if you put Advent together and you're thinking about this expectancy and this longing for the coming and the arrival, joy is a response that happens when that fulfillment takes place, isn't it? Mm. We want to read a section of scripture and this week, and you can focus on different scriptures as we're celebrating Advent or as we're using the symbolic practice of Advent to remind us of the meaning of Jesus' birth. We're centering in on the story of Christmas from Luke chapter 2. And today I want us to read verses 8 to 15 of chapter 2. And let's listen for joy and see how it expresses itself. You just go around and maybe Daniel, could you start us off? Mm-hmm. So Luke 2 verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And you will recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And then over to 15. And when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. (laughs) That's a beautiful translation, Mark, where you talked about the baby wrapped in strips of cloths. It's beautiful. Yeah, where do you see joy here? I mean, there's the promise of joy in the angel's message. I bring you Mm -hmm. good news that will cause great joy. Uh, But that's more of a promise than it is an actual happening at that moment. Happening at that moment is kind of like, wow. What a great point. You know, and isn't that so much how joy is? Mm-hmm. It's a promise. The first response of the shepherds is what in verse nine? They're terrified. <laughs> I think I would be too. <laughs> Me too. And the angel says, "Don't be afraid. I bring you tidings, good news mm-hmm. that will cause great joy for all the people." That's completely counterintuitive, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Joy is a reason for gladness. This candle is also called the shepherd's candle because it connects to what happened with the shepherds, which as we're entering this, our own adventure here, we're relating. We're like, terror is our first response to the great news. Joy is the promise of what's going to happen to us as we go and witness what God has provided for us. Don't you think, Elisa, though, that while there was that initial terror 
by the time it was gone, there had to be another emotion that it was overwhelming mm -hmm. just to think what just happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. And when we got to participate, and if we think about it, who were shepherds? What do we know about shepherds from New Testament or Old Testament times? They were not highly regarded. They tended to be sort of marginalized in the culture, even though they have a deep history in the culture. I mean, in our last conversation, Daniel mentioned Kenneth Bailey and uh, some of his scholarship. His book, The Good Shepherd, really tracks shepherding beginning with the 23rd Psalm all the way to Jesus and his parables. And you just see how deeply rooted shepherding is in the Jewish culture. And yet they weren't really very well thought of. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're kind of a little bit outcasted, and yet Jesus himself refers to himself as a shepherd. Can one of y'all get John 10? Let's look at verses 14 and 15 and see how Jesus describes himself. Sure, I can do that. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Mm. So there's kind of some irony at the beginning of Jesus's life where the good news about the Messiah gets announced to those who are on the outside of culture. And then Jesus himself takes on that identity as well. There's a humbling there, isn't there? Mm -hmm. That you know, I didn't expect to see. It's a reality that everything's going to flip. You know, God is really going to raise up the unseen, the invisible, uh, the rejected. He's going to raise up and change what we understand. This candle, the shepherd candle, the, the candle of joy, changes fear into an, a different kind of experience, does it? Now, it's often pink. I, mean, I think it's always pink, and that's thrownness. Why do we think it's pink? And Daniel, I'm going to ask you if you can speak into this, sure. because coming from a liturgical background, you have practiced Advent for some time. Why pink? Yeah, so it's technically rose. So both Advent and Lent are called preparation seasons, so seasons of preparation. So in Advent, we're preparing for Jesus to come. And in Lent, of course, we're preparing for Easter. And the point of preparation or one aspect of it is remembering our brokenness and how that brokenness affects our relationship with mm. God and with one another and uh, with the world. And yet within both of those seasons, right before you get to the end, there's this moment of joy. When we remember our brokenness, there's always good news for us as believers in Christ that comes with our brokenness because we're not defined by that anymore. We're defined by the good news of what Jesus has done, his rescue. And so even in this middle of remembering brokenness, we take a break to remember the joy that comes because of what Christ has done. And that has to do with pink? You know, <laughs> that's just been the color that's been passed down for generations. And who knows, maybe it was because it was the only candle the first time they did this, and it just stuck. We don't know exactly yeah. why, but we can remember this. The other three candles are purple until we see the Christ candle in our last conversation, which is white. But pink does transition away from the season of repentance and sadness into a, a time of celebration and hope. These shepherds are the ones who receive the joy and they're the like the first witnesses and they go and they share it with others and and to me this adventure that they had it expresses the adventure we are having 
The joy of Christmas, this shift from the somberness into the joy and celebration is contagious. And I don't know about you, but, you know, people who don't know Jesus at all can get swept up in the true joy that is birthed as we celebrate Christmas. And so we who belong to him can step into that joy and experience it ourselves because God has made it contagious. We can be vehicles of that contagion, inviting others into the adventure of Advent so that they too can experience that joy. Yeah, one of the things an Advent observance does is confront us with our brokenness. And yet, there's always good news for those who believe in Christ. Because of Jesus, we no longer have to be defined by our sin. And those are tidings of comfort and joy, and why joy is part of an Advent celebration. Now, you've probably noticed that the uh, candle colors have come up several times, especially with this pink candle of joy. Well, after that last conversation, Daniel told the group an interesting conversation he had related to the reason behind some of the traditions and symbolism and, and colors of the candles. And so let's take a second to listen. So, Mart and Bill, your obsession with the pink, I have a fun story that I'll share real quick. Uh, so the bishop that I was under for a while, he was temporarily over a bunch of the churches in our area. He also teaches at seminary, and he said that he always liked to remind people that a lot of the things that we use that are symbolic probably weren't as symbolic at the beginning when they were first used. So, for example, so much of Christianity met in the catacombs. The reason candles became such a big part of worship was probably because they needed to see. (laughs) But then he also mentioned that he foresees a day when people set up the table in liturgical churches, there'll be an old handheld microphone there. Eventually you'll ask like, why is that there? It's like, well, you know, it symbolizes God's voice going out into the world. (laughs) What is this thing? Yeah. And and then after COVID, he said that there'll probably also be a little bottle of sanitizer and a mask from this point forward. And uh, it'll be like, you know, because we cover our mouths in the presence of God and we We anoint with He washes away our sins. (laughs) (laughs) That makes a lot more sense, actually, than pink. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. Thanks, Daniel. And now the uh, peace or angel's candle. As we continue this Discover the Word podcast about the adventure of Advent. What is a peaceful place for you? Mm, My back porch with a cup of coffee listening to Mm. the birds. That was almost word for word what I was going to say, Daniel, only I would add early in the morning. Hey, you know, there's three of us. Okay. (laughs) I feel that way too. I mean, one of my most peaceful places is the ocean. And I like it so much because I can be still because it continues to move all the time. And that gives me great peace. We have been in the adventure of Advent considering the practice of Advent and um, how it can help us look back at what God promised, remember what God's going to bring back with Jesus' second coming, but also really hone in in this season of the gift of God in his son Jesus that came to us and what we celebrate as Christmas, right? And we've got these candles. The Advent wreath is is a vehicle we use to talk about 
this practice of Advent, the coming, the arrival, uh, the expectation of Jesus. And we're in our fourth candle now. So we've talked about the candle of hope and love, and then we did joy, and now we're doing peace. And peace is a challenging concept, isn't it? All four of these represent an element that Jesus brings into the world. Sometimes this candle of peace is called the angel's candle. And we'll see why as we read the text for today. And we're centering our concentration of Advent in on the Christmas story, readings from the book of Luke chapter 2. We can pick other scriptures to remind ourselves of Jesus coming, but, but we're centering in there. Let's read Luke 2, 9 through 15 gathering back uh, the conversations we've had around the candle of joy with the shepherds and bringing it forward into the the candle of peace, the angel candle today. Who wants to start? Okay, I will. Suddenly an, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And then in verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven... The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. Mm. This candle of peace, also purple, or back to purple from the pink one with joy, <laughs> is kind of sandwiched in between the shepherd story, isn't it? Because the angels are intrinsic in the shepherd story. They appear. We've got this um, context of struggle going on in society during this time. We looked at that in a prior conversation about the unrest of Rome. So into this unrest comes an angel appearing, promising peace. Let's unpack a couple of things here. What do we know about angels from other sections of scripture and what's told about them in this part? Well, before you even do that, I think it's interesting that as we saw in an earlier conversation that even though the theme of this candle is about peace, peace was not the byproduct of what happened when they showed up. I mean, it was exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. It was disturbing and unsettling, and the scripture says terrifying to those shepherds. So even though their message was peace, seeing them was not a peaceful experience for those guys. Mm. That is so good. I don't think it was to Mary nor to Joseph. When they were visited by an angel, they were both, what? happening, woken up in a dream, etc. And that fits mm. with the whole story of the Bible, right? Because when angels show up, somebody dies very often. <laughs> and when they don't die, usually the first thing they say is don't be afraid mm-hmm. because people expect that when they show up that they're going to die. So there's like this whole history throughout the whole Bible. When angels show up, scary things can happen. So the shepherds are just falling in line with, I think, the way we would probably respond to if we saw angels. That's what I was thinking. You know, if something happened like that right now, (laughs) it'd be terrifying. You know, we've talked often about holy terror. 
And maybe that's what we're describing here. You know, we're told in scripture, you know, that we're supposed to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is a good thing, right? And so when an angel appears, our response is fear. That's a good thing. How's that a good thing? What does that natural human terror tell us? In some ways, maybe, Elisa, I think that it could reflect a sense of our smallness, a sense of our frailty, because, I mean, for the sake of these poor shepherds, I mean, they were being confronted by something otherworldly. Mm-hmm. And automatically, they realized, whatever's going on here, I'm not enough for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost as if the common, the normal, and the ordinary suddenly is lifted to a sense of perspective that is far above us. Mm-hmm. We see examples throughout Scripture, you know, whether it's uh, the transfiguration mm-hmm. or, or maybe we see at the tomb after Jesus' resurrection or even the burning bush, you know, with Moses that is so other than us. Okay, now what is the message that the angels say to the shepherd? And Bill, go back and, and grab that. Um, it's a great company of the heavenly host. Mm-hmm. It's not just one. It's a yeah. whole bunch of them here. What do they say in verse 14 of Luke chapter 2? Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. What a contrast to the terror. They've been promised joy, which comes from true confidence in God and his provision, but he is actually proclaiming, the angels are proclaiming peace on earth. Mm-hmm. And that reckons us back to some of the titles that were prophesied. And again, when we're doing Advent, we're looking back at what was promised. We're looking at what God's given, what he will return to us in. But what was prophesied about Jesus, and this is from Isaiah 9, 6. Would you read that, one of you? And let's listen to those titles and for the word peace. Yeah, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. That's what the angels are proclaiming. And maybe we don't totally get the answer because we're going to see unrest and we're going to see Jesus speaking to unrest throughout his life. And he's going to die on the cross at the hands of unrest 30-something years later. But in his last days, in an upper room where he's equipping his disciples, he will speak again of this peace Can one of you get John 14, verse 27, and listen to Jesus' words about this coming of peace? Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I love other words that he said in the same setting of, um, in this world you will have trouble, Mm -hmm. but take heart. I have overcome the world. And we've talked many times about how we're living in the now and the not yet. Mm -hmm. You know, we still are living in the unrest. Mm -hmm. And yet the gift of this fourth candle that we are celebrating, this gift that Jesus gives us, is the gift of peace. And it's in Hebrew, it's translated as shalom. It means a complete, total, sound, harmonious, secure kind of peace. Our friend Tim Keller, who's been with us at... The microphone says that shalom is experienced as a multidimensional, a complete well-being 
physical, mental, social, and spiritual. It flows from all of our relationships being put right with God, with ourselves, and with others. Jesus is this Prince of Peace. Yeah. I think, Elisa, you know, you asked, where's the peace in all of this and in the midst of the troubled world? And it's like what we saw in the earlier conversation about joy, that this is where the anticipation element of Advent comes in. Mm. We do not yet see all things under his feet, the scriptures say, but that they will come. It is the not yet part of it that we anticipate the time when he will bring perfect peace to the world. In the middle of all this, he gives us the capacity for what Paul called a peace that passes understanding as we live in the turbulent world. But all of that is just a hint Mm -hmm. or an anticipation of what will come when the Prince of Peace does come that second time. And so once again, Advent is expectation. Mm -hmm. It's waiting uh, for him to come and make all things right. And so maybe as we practice lighting this candle of peace, you're right, we may not experience it as we will one day, but maybe we remember that moment on the deck with our cup of coffee or the moment at the ocean watching the waves. And in those moments, we think there is a nowness to it because Jesus through his Holy Spirit, God through his Holy Spirit is with us now, giving us access to an eventual peace. If just for a moment, maybe you're going to sit and look out the window at the snow falling, or you're going to look at the rain or the wind in a a warm environment, and you're going to remember this moment of peace that I'm touching right now will be a permanent provision one day because of God's amazing gift of His Son. In many ways, we are living in the already but not yet part of our journey of faith, living in anticipation of heaven. And despite all the unrest in the world, we have this wonderful gift and promise of peace. You're listening to Discover the Word with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day, The Adventure of Advent and the Peace or Angel's Candle. Well, one more candle in the Advent wreath, and we'll talk about it after this word about our next podcast. On the next Discover the Word podcast, author and professor Dr. Sung Chan Ra joins the group to talk about the necessary spiritual discipline of lament, something we often do all we can to avoid. 80 to 85% of our hymns, the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals, are songs of joy, celebration, victory, triumph. And only about 15 to 20% of our hymns are hymns of lament. Now in the Bible, the Psalms, 60% praise and 40% lament. So what we've done is we've overemphasized one aspect of worship and de-emphasized the other aspect of worship. Mm. And so I think in Western culture, I would say, um, in particular, we jump from, oh, we're in pain right now, let's quickly get to the celebration, rather than we might need to stay in this just a little bit longer in order to experience the fullness of God. I'm not saying don't get to the joy. I'm saying let's not jump so quickly to it that we forget the discipline of lament along the way. An important study based in Jeremiah and Lamentations with Sung Chan Ra on Lament, the Church in Crisis on the next Discover the Word podcast. 
And now, the final candle of Advent, the Christ candle. Okay, are you guys fans of candlelight, like all the time, but maybe at Christmas especially? Does that do anything for you, or are you kind of like indifferent? In my uh, years as a pastor, I remember many times having uh, candlelight communion services, mm-hmm. which I thought had a very gentle, calming kind of, it was kind of the the peace in the midst of the storm of all the Christmas activities. There was this one moment where everything kind of just calmed down. I love it in the house. I mean, over the years, my wife Di would buy many candles, and, and some with the... Uh, the fragrance of the candles would be calming, as well as just the the light and the, you know, I, I love candles. We've been going through the four candles, and there are going to be five total of Advent as we consider this practice of Advent. And we're going to crescendo today with the Christ candle, the fifth candle. Before we do, let's review. We've been talking about Advent, which really means arrival or coming, We've been talking about it as an adventure. That word Advent has a similar root to our word adventure, which really means looking forward to something really wonderful. And when you put them together, Advent is an adventure. It's an adventure of considering again what God promised and what he gave in his son and what he'll give again in the second coming. Has this conversation shaped you in some way? What surprised you? What's been, huh, I think I might take this away from it. You know what comes to my mind is that, honestly, and and it happens so often, I've been impressed with what has happened by our wading into this together. Hmm. It allows me to see things in a new way, and and even to to think of the, the season leading up to Christmas as having so many different dimensions yeah. and so many different ways to think about it and reflect on it. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things to think about related to seasons like Advent and, and really the church calendar in general, right? Like so liturgical churches follow like a church calendar and Advent's the beginning of the year. And it goes back so far too. I mean, that's... Yeah. Early church history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Advent mm-hmm. was the beginning of the year, starting with Christ's coming. And one of the things that's often said in those circles is if we don't keep time as the church, the world will gladly keep time for us. Hmm. And so what I love about Advent specifically is it comes in one of the craziest times of year, (laughs) but it slows us down and reminds us that we don't live for buying presents and we don't live for consumerism or crazy activities. Our identity, our life is oriented around something different. And it's this work that God has begun with Christ and continues in us and will complete in us. That's really good, Daniel. And uh, Mm. one of the things that struck me, and it goes back to what Mark was saying about how far back this goes, but I think in an earlier conversation, Lisa, you told us that um, the practice of Advent tracks back to the fourth century. And if you think about that, you realize that for people who had trusted him by faith, they didn't have access to Bibles. Mm. They couldn't pick up and read the Christmas story like we can. And so a lot of these things were developed to give them a way to remember the important ideas. So here are the important things that Jesus does because he came. And for them to have a way to remember that and practice that, 
in a time when they didn't have access to the scriptures like we do, I think would have been really meaningful. Yeah. Almost like a memory device. Yeah. yeah to yeah. rehearse the story. Yeah. And some of the elements of, you know, a wreath, a circle, which would represent unending connection and love by God, an evergreen wreath, which represents his eternality and our hope of eternal life. These candles, purple, and the one pink, the purple was, you know, moving from, as you said, Daniel, I think, repentance to celebration. And then also the meanings of them, hope and then love and then joy and peace. And in some traditions, those orders are a little bit different, but those four elements core. It's really rich. And and we went through the Christmas story and we saw hope, you know, in Simeon and Anna, and we saw love in Mary and Joseph and in God himself. We saw joy in the shepherds being promised it. And we saw peace with the angels proclaiming it. It's exactly what you're saying. What a great way to remember Mm. the telling of the story. Today, we come to a white candle, the white candle, which is the Christ candle. And, and maybe, Daniel, could you just tell us a minute or two about why a Christ candle? And then I want us to read a scripture that I think really helps us move this forward. Yeah, so all of the lights are representing Jesus, who is the light of the world. And the Christ candle is often lit on Christmas Eve night or early Christmas morning while it's still dark. And it represents that Jesus has finally arrived. And so you have this white candle sitting in the middle and you'll notice that all these other candles are getting smaller and smaller and smaller because mm. you light them all every mm-hmm. week. So there's great symbolism. Yeah. yeah. And so then Christ, the light of the world, comes into the world, into the darkness. Mm. Let's go to John chapter 1, and I'm going to ask us to read verse 1 and then skip to verse 5 to 9. And imagine reading this as that Christ candle is lit, maybe as you light it yourself. Mark, you want to start us? Okay. In the beginning, the Word already existed, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. In verse 8, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The Christ candle. Our response to Christ coming is adoration, Mm. is awe, Mm. is thanksgiving and praise and delight. But I think when we light that Christ candle, and Daniel, you were expressing how the Christ candle is now high as the other candles that have preceded it grow smaller and smaller. I'm reminded of what Jesus talked about in John 8, 12. Can somebody grab that? Sure. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then one of y'all read Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. Sure. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good work and give glory to your Father in heaven. Hmm. I wonder if all of that 
meant even more to people living in the first century. What do you mean, Mark? They didn't have access to the switch. Mm-hmm. Candles were all they had. Yeah. Yeah. So these words are just that you would hear them echoing in the darkness and taking on their own light. What a beautiful progression of thought, you know, that there is a man coming into the world to foretell of light, and then he's prophesying, John the Baptist prophesying the coming of light. Jesus himself says he is the light. And then as he gives us the light, he tells us we're his light Mm -hmm. in this world. This Christ candle reminds us of that progression, doesn't it? Yeah, there's almost like it's the whole thing has been building to this climax so that everything that's being anticipated along the way now is real and it's tangible and it's there. And we think at Christmas so much about the baby in the manger. We don't often think about just the miracle of the incarnation, that verse one that Mark read, Mm -hmm. the word that was with the Father in eternity past came and I remember reading C.S. Lewis saying that all the miracles in the Bible before lead up to the incarnation and all the miracles after play mm-hmm. off of it. I mean, mm-hmm. he says the incarnation is the biggest miracle in the whole Bible. And you see this kind of progression building up to that and you feel the anticipation of it. Mm-hmm. And I like to build building off that. It's the completeness of the story mm-hmm. when the Christ candle is lit. You know, if you picture the wreath at the beginning of Advent and that first week you light one candle and then the second week you light the first candle and then the second candle and then the third week, the first and then the second and the third candle and then the fourth week, the first, the second, the third, the fourth candle. Mm-hmm. And then on Christmas Eve or early Christmas morning, you light all five candles. And, you know, we often talk about how the whole story of the Bible is the story of Jesus pointing to him. Mm -hmm. And so the whole story comes together and finds its completion in the Christ candle, who is the light. And Elisa, as you said, who then hands the light to us and sends us into the world. Mm. In fact, in many services, and it's one of my favorite parts of the season, the leader then will take that Christ candle and light another candle with it and begin the lighting of the Mm -hmm. candles throughout the congregation as the light of the Christ candle goes out through us and then into our world. What meaning it takes on. So as we close this, I just want to offer this prayer for us And for all who have joined this conversation as we consider joining in the adventure of Advent. Lord Jesus, Master of both the light and the darkness, send your Holy Spirit upon our preparations for Christmas. We who have so much to do, seek quiet spaces to hear your voice each day. We who are anxious over many things, look forward to your coming among us. We who are blessed in so many ways long for the complete joy of your kingdom. We whose hearts are heavy seek the joy of your presence. We are your people, walking in darkness yet seeking the light. To you we say, come Lord Jesus. hope you've come to see this week how practicing the adventure of Advent can help us trust that since God was faithful in the past, 
He will be faithful in the future. It adds a great dimension to our celebration of Christmas, doesn't it? And I think it keeps us from getting all wrapped up in the things that Christmas really isn't. Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day wrapping up this Discover the Word podcast called The Adventure of Advent. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. We would encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Our mission in all we do here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And if you'd like to come alongside and partner with us in this ministry, we would invite you to lend your financial support. Simply go online to discovertheword.org and click the Donate button. You'll see some options and you can give right there. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. Thank you.